Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Listen up. If you are a baseball coach or a former player, this episode is dedicated to you. Even if you're like Beer League Baseball Champs Luke and Tex, or like me, a batting cage all-star, you'll appreciate all that Dr. David Szymanski has to offer. I say it all the time, but this episode is so good. Dr. Szymanski breaks down baseball's mechanics, myths, science, and even politics. He has personally researched and tested many of the player gimmicks you see on infomercials. His work simply comes down to two goals, make qualified strength conditioning coaches invaluable to sport coaches and spread the knowledge he's gained to improve the performance of anyone willing to listen. This is episode 252. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? It is that time again, not... For your local Austin weather forecast, this isn't a meteorology podcast, people. We're but be... it is pretty cool out. No, I'd say it's like a brisk 40 degrees. Yeah, it was uh, uh, partly cloudy. 44 degrees at yeah, uh, 630 yeah. this morning. Mm-hmm. Very important information for our listener. <laughs> uh, I thought, uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, uh, parents and yes, uh, of loved course. ones. Of course. Know, so that's about it. But people, this is another episode of the premier podcast in strength. And conditioning. And Ing. if you're... Ing. Yeah, Ing. Tex, where you at Ing. on that? It, listen, if you Check are... Listen, people. If you are one of those loyalists who's like sitting there, you're in your cube or whatever you sit at, road. and you're just like, man, when is, when is Power Athlete going to drop this episode? And as soon as they drop it, you pop on and you listen. And today is March 30th. Here's what you need to do right now. Stand up, take your shirt off, and sing happy birthday to Jean Wellborn, the Chili Pepper a power athlete because today John hot turned hot pepper hot pepper the chili pepper was uh, probably what you stuck in your butt in some weird you know bed at the Atlanta it's how I keep posture it's true I mean <laughs> if you have a you hot know, pe- pepper up your butt you stand nice and attentive Luke's like yeah it was weird and they just kept packing it in there mm-hmm. yeah we graduated to green peppers yeah I'm not gonna lie uh, uh, a little ghost chili uh, it was actually first pe- first grade hot pepper champion so I was the best <laughs> jump roper uh, you know I played 10 years in the NFL or nine and some change but uh, I like to refer back to my first grade um, well, my first taste of victory being the hot pepper champion that, as I often or very infrequently recall my state championship that neither of you ever achieved in high school when you peaked <laughs> Right. Well, when you get your state championship, I mean, do you immediately go get the tribal tattoo? Uh, no, it was before no, that. That's you on get the, the tribal to no. the state championship. Oh. You get the tribal tattoo that's to why make we a statement. Never got it, John. To make we a were statement, tribal less. <laughs> this is a state champion tribal uh, tattoo. Yeah, unfortunately, I ended up with the world's largest tramp stamp that goes from <laughs> the, the bottom of my neck to the base of my. You know, I mean, it's. I mean, that's let me impressive. tell you, a blind man could. It's a blind man's tramp stamp is what I have. So, any public service announcement, announcements, John? That I we have to cover. Should, I think, <laughs> uh, as always, get, as always, right? we're, we are trolling the podcast for a uh, you know lucky lady that would like to uh, attend Luke Summer's wedding with mm-hmm. one Mr. Chris McWilkin. He's uh, he's in the market for a date. It's a sad day. Tex has a plus one. He has a plus one, but he has no plus one. One to plus up. So uh, you know, please send all <laughs> resumes, pictures, whatever you need to Cali at powerathletehq.com. You can also send one to Human Resource, and you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, don't. yeah, Lawrence Beanbody. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> enough about us. Yeah. I think we barrel forward. We do have. Uh, I'll speak for myself once again, which is basically every guest. <laughs> so don't feel like you're special, David. Someone who's much, much smarter than me. And I think it's going to be a pretty awesome podcast talking about some of the the articles you published. We have. Excuse me, David Szymanski, who's director, chair, and professor 
at LA Tech, La Tech. La uh, Tech. Do you know who, uh, do you know which famous NFL player uh, played football at La Tech? No. Willie Rofe. Oh, your boy. Meat Rofe. And I think more like Great one. Great nickname. Yeah, that's what that's what my nickname for him was Meat Rofe. <laughs> Meat Rofe. Meat Rofe. But David, I think, is also heads up uh, at, at the NSCA, you got the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, right? So you were like the research and strength and conditioning journal. Like every ooh. time Luke says the word strength and conditioning, I want to go ing, ing, ing. That's how it's conditioned. Yeah, it's ing, like Pavlov's dog. <laughs> so, David, for, thanks for joining the show, man. Give us a. Give us what I've missed, because you gave us a little brief on the, the front end here. What, what's your background? How'd you get here? I was a college baseball player at Texas Lutheran University in Seguin, Texas, right outside of where Austin, Texas is, right? And I had a baseball coach, Ray Cott, who was a World Series champion in the 1954 New York Giants, played with Willie Mays. And I was a 170-pound, foot ten shortstop. And I wanted to get bigger and better and stronger. But the, our coach, unfortunately, at the time, thought that resistance training was going to make you muscle-bound. And that was going to be a detriment to my performance. So we actually had to go sneak into the weight room later in the evenings if we wanted to do it. And if we got caught, we actually got reprimanded. And all my life, I was like, wait a minute, man. This is, doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. Because if you're going to get stronger... And then, you, you know, you're learning in your, then your formal education, you're going to have greater force application. And then maybe I can do a greater rate of force development. I could be more powerful. Maybe I could swing the bat faster. Maybe I could throw the ball harder. Maybe I could run bases faster. Well, that was never part of the conversation. And it was just a moot point. It's like, no, you're not, you can't do this end of story because of what he believed in. And so it was a challenge. So uh, when I didn't get drafted, uh, after my senior year in 1989, I then uh, kept training. And then I kept trying to find out if I could get drafted by some other teams. I talked to other scouts. And I actually came across Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, the hardcover copy. <laughs> that I, I have that on my shelf. I actually have that. Yep. And I read that cover to cover, and I implemented the training programs. And at the time, I was not a kinesiology major, so I didn't know anything better. That's the information that I had available to me. And so I went from 60-minute workouts to 90-minute workouts to two-hour workouts to two-and-a-half-hour workouts. And then I was like, wait a minute. I'm in the Texas heat trying to work out. No air conditioning in the building that I'm working out in. There maybe is a thing about Gatorade. Maybe this stuff could work. Maybe I should add it to my program, and maybe it'll give me some more energy while I work out. And lo and behold, it did. And so that was kind of maybe my first sports nutrition uh, education right there because didn't have the energy to sustain a workout. But ultimately had a really nice bodybuilding physique. I don't know if it was ever going to help me per se for the sport I was playing in baseball, but I was suntan and real, <laughs> real lean that year. But I ultimately did have some tryouts with the Chicago Cubs and the Texas Rangers. Unfortunately, at the time, both places, it rained. And so I was 22. And when you're 22, as you guys know, and you haven't played a year of organized sport, you're over the hill. So I did not have an opportunity. So ultimately, I became a, an admissions counselor at, the, at Texas Lutheran. But after about two and a half years of doing that, I said, you know what, I want to get back into baseball. And so I'm going to recommit myself to being a coach. And so I re-enrolled at Texas Lutheran, got a second undergraduate degree in kinesiology, was coaching at Texas Lutheran with Bill Miller, who's now the uh, athletic director there, and then went to Texas, well, Southwest Texas State University at the time 
studied under Tinker Murray there. Uh, Bill Squires was, Dr. Bill Squires was the professor at Texas Lutheran. And that's where I learned exercise physiology and then training concepts. And then I tried to then apply it to the, the guys at Texas Lutheran because Texas Lutheran is a, uh, an NAI school, uh, didn't have any formal weight training facilities. And so we just had a, a shed with barbells and dumbbells and started doing some things. And, you know, we started kind of with the Arnold Schwarzenegger and bodybuilding stuff, but then started reading information. And I took a research methods class at Texas, Southwest Texas State. And all of a sudden I was like, there's this guy named Dr. Coop Durin at the University of Hawaii who's doing overweighted bat and uh, underweighted bat training and an overweighted and underweighted ball training to look at enhancing bat speed or throwing velocity. And I was like, this was in the 1980s and I'm in now 1990s. And I said, I've never heard of this ever before. Why isn't anyone talking about this? And that's where I kind of got the research bug. And Dr. Squires, as I was working at Texas Lutheran after four years of, of being at uh, that institution, said, you need to go get your PhD, man. And I was like, well, I got two undergraduate degrees, a master's degree, and I can't coach, right? Because I don't, <laughs> I don't know the right people. And then I just had to get in a new group of uh, coaches. And so in 1996, I went to Auburn University. Uh, Hal Baird was the head baseball coach there. They, I asked if I could be, get involved, and actually the volunteer assistant baseball coach position was open. I was offered a GTA position as a doctoral student. My wife was offered a position to be a strength coach uh, at Auburn as a, G, as a GA, and the stars aligned. We all of a sudden went to a place where we felt really welcome and got a part of the Auburn family and had great experience working there. And then as this story goes on, uh, I, from being the volunteer assistant baseball coach, I started training the baseball players in the summertime for free because I didn't believe that the strength training that I was witnessing in the weight room was the most appropriate for them. And so all of a sudden I did all those things. And all of a sudden the baseball players, unbeknownst to me, started going and talking to the coaches. Hey man, hire this guy to be our strength and conditioning person. Well, at the time they already had a full staff, so they couldn't do that. Ultimately, Hal Baird retired. Steve Renfro, the head assistant, became the head coach, and he hired me full-time to be the exercise physiologist of the Auburn baseball team in 2000 because they had to call me something else than a strength coach. And so we then got together with um, some individuals to build a weight room facility that's no longer at Auburn, believe it or not, but it took us two years to design this facility, and it was adjacent to the baseball field. 2,500 square foot weight room just for baseball that I designed specifically for them. And in 2004, we went 12 and 18 in the SEC. Coach Renfro got let go, and then all the coaching staff got let go. I get, I get called into the athletic director's office, and he says, hey, did you finish your PhD? I said, yeah, I did. He goes, that's great, because we're not going to retain your services anymore. So that was the way in which I was told that I was no longer going to be working there. Cold-blooded. Yeah. So then... Uh, you can't work at Auburn now with a terminal degree. They want you to go elsewhere. They won't hire their own. So I couldn't be a professor, and I got fired from athletics, so now there's no place for me to go. If you've never been to Auburn, Alabama, great place, but it's also a small community, so there's not a lot of opportunities for me to be employed with a Ph.D. Ultimately, at that time in 2004, I uh, ran again into uh, Lauren Seagrave, and Lauren was involved with the Velocity Sports Performance franchise at the time, and I ended up taking a job in Tulsa, Oklahoma, trained with Lauren for a while, improved my sprint technique and agilities and all that type of stuff more, and then worked in Tulsa. But after working there, I went to the January 2005 NSCA Coaches Conference in Nashville, Tennessee, and or maybe it was Louisville, Kentucky, 
my point is though, I ran into a professor friend of mine. He's like, you know what? You need to be a professor. You need to go do the research you've been doing, continue it, and then educate people on how you might want to think about training a baseball player. And unfortunately, the people who ran the business in Tulsa were asking us as strength coaches to help them collect money. And it just, I, I just saw it going downhill. And so in January, I called up my wife from that conference and I said, hey, uh, I'm going to start applying for teaching positions and I'll see where it goes. And ultimately, in 2005, Louisiana Tech was the school that offered me a position. Hurricane Katrina hit that year. I lived in my office because we couldn't find a house in Ruston, Louisiana until December 17th and slept on the floor, uh, <laughs> did all types of crazy things here because I just didn't have a place to live. And uh, that's kind of where it's been. I've been at Louisiana Tech since 2005, started as an assistant professor, started working with Wade Simino, who was the head baseball coach, and uh, volunteered with them. And all of a sudden, then developed a 10-year relationship with him did probably more baseball research than in, in the physiological probably perspective than maybe anywhere in the country, which I'm very proud of. Dan Weeks that Tex had mentioned earlier in our conversation was a student who came here and I've had a, we nicknamed him Weak Sauce. So Weak Sauce. Weak Sauce. <laughs> so I like Willie Rofe's nickname, Dan's nickname, Weak Sauce. Well, <laughs> you also got to mention Terry Bradshaw, right? Yeah, Terry yeah, Bradshaw. And, and uh, then, uh, I actually had dinner with Terry Bradshaw and uh, batshit crazy is the only word that I know for him. I thought he was great in <laughs> yeah. Failure to Launch starring Matthew McConaughey. Uh, I cannot. Bad I shit. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. Hell of a quarterback. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal quarterback. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. He, crazy. So. Hey, David, talk to me. Talk to me from your perspective about the, you know, when you were when you were a young kid playing baseball mm -hmm. and and taking on the strength and conditioning mindset. What was the rest of the the crew? Uh, maybe the collegiate mindset i mean let me just tell you where baseball is at our perspective and you're sure. we'll invite you to shift it we jokingly run around seminars and say oh you're a baseball player we ask for real athletes not people playing organized grab ass <laughs> you know what i mean because you can have a guy it's 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 a mix it's interesting sport mixture of skill and athleticism and you can succeed on one or the other but if you can tap into both uh you become a weapon right so yep, back when you back in that day, was it common for guys to be banging weights and seeing the connection between, hey, if, like like you saw, if I can do some of these cutting edge, I'm kind of air quoting, cutting edge type of performance training, it could help my bat speed, my throw, uh, my acceleration, my deceleration, et cetera. Well, when I was in high school and college, I think a lot of baseball coaches were not formally educated in whether you call it physical education at the time, whether it's now kinesiology, which it's currently being called because it's an umbrella term that really embraces all of those fields. They didn't have that background. So they were what I call regurgitating what they were taught when they were players themselves. And this is the way we're going to do it. And baseball in a roundabout way, you could say is somewhat archaic, although things are changing, right? So they're now hiring some sports science people. They're hiring data analytic individuals. They've got some strength and conditioning people who are really well educated now. And so that is changing. So I'm very, very happy after 30 years of not seeing it, it's finally happening. And I'm very uh, proud that some of the guys that came here as graduate students are now working in the field. But to get back to your question, you know, I only knew of guys that were division one programs that were really doing the strength and conditioning because they actually had strength coaches hired at their university. And I remember in particular one year I went to Texas A&M and I went there and I saw Natum, uh, I think it's State Natum Steve Stadium or whatever. I, I don't know the name. I'm sorry. But anyway, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like uh, 
a hundred yard facility that you could run a 60 yard sprints in the middle and you had platforms on one side and benches on the other and plyometric areas and cardiovascular equipment. I was like, man, this is bigger than any facility I've ever seen. And one of the guys that I knew there said, Hey man, we're doing Olympic lifting and this is what we should be doing to be more powerful. And at the time I didn't know anything really about Olympic lifting. I had no experience whatsoever in anything other than what I told you about earlier, where I was reading Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia bodybuilding, because that's what I had accessible to me at the time. And I certainly didn't know anything about the NSCA or any other organization at that time either to read information until I ultimately got into, you know, my master's program, where I started looking at research and, and looking at microfiche and microfilm, as opposed to what you can get on the internet now, just point and click. And in 10 seconds, you got 10 PDFs that are yeah, instantaneously cool. uh, accessible to you. Doc, so I think nice. you're way over their head. I don't think these guys remember going. I remember into, microfiche. You know, yeah, you don't remember I mean, having I any, never uh, had to use it. We were taught uh, to use it because we were going oh, to need to use it. Like, we, cursive. We, we actually, where you scroll with the newspapers. Dude, yeah, 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 like you, like you go literally. You go to the uh, the library and you like take the microfiche and you put it in like the the uh, the, the viewer and then you like scroll through yeah. and uh, like beyond archaic. Yeah, and like yep. the dude it was in the original like, Batman. That's like, how. That's the only way. I <laughs> like we had to actually, uh, and he's gonna laugh at this. You guys remember the Dewey Decimal System? Oh yeah. So like there was a whole like Dewey Decimal System for cataloging what? of books. Did you know? Is you that said no. An abacus. You said no on Dewey. You know, you never use a Dewey yeah, Decimal Dewey System. No, we had to learn that what stuff the because fuck, dude? dude, my mom would take us and drop us off at the library, and uh, we would yeah. have to be there and like go read books and like look at stuff, and uh, we would just go find books to read, and she would pick us up like a I couple just hours later, aimlessly through the the aisles, like a yeah. a, a child that walks into the middle yeah. of a movie yeah, the, and starts asking well, questions. We it's, knew exactly like what the, you know, and like uh, my favorite thing was we would get like old uh, newspapers because although those were all on like the microfish and microfiche, and uh, like look at like. Just pick a year and then you would go read the newspaper. Now this is a really exciting yeah, childhood. Out of a fucking yeah. thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, now kids today, fucking iPhones. Yeah, Texas. You know, it's a good thing that you weren't exposed to the Dewey Decimal System because I don't think you could fucking keep up, bro. No. Yeah. That's why I play sports. <laughs> oh. Uh, real sports. Please? Let's uh, <laughs> let's use like that kind of loose term of playing sports. What's wrong with baseball, football, and lacrosse? Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, that's a. Hi Don't catalog. Worry. All right, let's <laughs> yeah, let's wrangle yeah. it back in. So sorry, David. Yeah, that's all right. Well, so you had to go to basically the basement of a library, and you kind of like you were in the dark. And uh, you know, when I was younger, I used you know I watched a lot of movies. So Indiana Jones is a movie that I liked a lot. So I felt like I was Indiana Jones. I'm looking for the Holy Grail on how to train baseball players, and you had to go find the information and nobody was willing to go do that extra work. And so then I created my own catalogs of information. So I have three ring binders in my office that I truly prefer to use because they're tangible. I can read them. I can underline them. I can highlight them, write notes in it. And so that's how I still operate today. And I try to get as many articles as I can, print them, read them, put them in my binders. And then I can then go find them whenever I need to. So then when I'm asked now to be like a reviewer of baseball articles from biomechanics or exercise science or strength and conditioning, I've probably read most of the articles that have been published. So I know if somebody's actually giving you accurate information or not when they're writing an article. And unfortunately, sometimes I'm like, you know what, to the author, I'm like, you've misinterpreted the information, I think, greatly, and you need to go back and reread it. It's kind of like uh, the movie Fletch, right? We need some ball bearings, some 30-weight oil, and some gauze. It's all ball bearings. Uh, <laughs> two things. Uh, one, course, man. Uh, I actually, uh, I went to Berkeley, and uh, one of the guys that I played football with, uh, I think he wrote his senior thesis on uh, that 
something basically you could take somebody who didn't have a sense of humor and there was a uh, threshold of watching Fletch over and over again where all of a sudden you could teach them to be funny and uh, there was this whole fucking theory he had now he smoked a lot of pot so I, I you know <laughs> uh, take it for what it's worth but um, you know uh, I've been fortunate to work with a fair decent amount of baseball players and it's extremely confusing because uh, like very different than football where you have a kind of like this maturation process you go to college you play you get this film and then you know you have a combine and then you go in and it's like a much simpler deal uh, with baseball uh, they're drafting kids based off of you know right out of high school based off of what they think is potential and like you know for them uh, um, you know, I had a train with a kid who was, you know, 22 years old, just got done playing college and he was throwing like 96, 97 miles an hour, which, you know, and couldn't even get a snip because they were willing to, you know, spend time on a 17 or 18 year old kid that was throwing 94, 95 that had greater potential. And so I think with, um, you know, and then I was able to fortune to work with uh, Christian Cologne, uh, who was a uh, number four pick overall for the KC guys. And, uh, you know, straight out, you know, never went to college and, you know, drafted these kids right out of high school. And I asked him and he's like, yeah, I would have gone to college if I didn't get drafted. But it's very difficult for the guys that come out of college to uh, have like the the volume of information available to them, and then also the teams kind of categorize them in two places. Like, did we raise them or did the school raise them? So I think uh, baseball is just to me is you know coming from a football background is super confusing. So yeah. um, I mean, how much would you say uh, like? your ability to develop an athlete as they, you know, cause if you look at like, you know, for most sports, I mean, people tend to mature and really even like, you know, maturation process into their, into their twenties and you can mid twenties and you can look at some of the best baseball players really haven't even hit their stride until they're 25, 26 and even into their thirties. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I, I lived down the street from David Wells, uh, the pitcher, and uh, I used to go work out and swing by Wellesley's house. And uh, he started drinking at 10 in the morning for his training. And then we'd fuck around and play the drums. And he was like, you can go lift weights. I'll just fucking throw the ball. Right. And uh, so I, I like, I'm always um, I, like, to me, uh, strength conditioning for baseball players is kind of a interesting black hole in that um, so much of what they're drafting and trying to bring along is like perceived potential. So I just, uh, you know, I, I'd love to, you know, I, I find it super fascinating, especially somebody that has as much experience as you have. But can you kind of talk a little bit about that, about, you know, how you kind of temper this, you know, like, hey, what I know is for athletic performance. But like all of that athletic performance, you're hoping drives to a certain place, which is a long you know, career in Major League Baseball. But a lot of those guys never get the opportunity because right. uh, of perceived potential. Right. Well, when I talk about my role when I was a strength and conditioning person, based on all my experience and research, I tell people it was my job to keep you healthy, strong, powerful, and on the field. I can't make you a better baseball player because I, I think, unfortunately, there's probably strength coaches at division one schools that probably believe that they're enhancing a player's performance, but they just actually have great horses in the stables, I like to say. So when I had players at Auburn, I had guys who were drafted in the you know first, second, third round, and they could do anything you asked them to do. And you're like, man, I must be doing all this to help them. And then you come to a place like Louisiana Tech or Texas Lutheran, where I was, and at Louisiana Tech for 10 years, I have all the data where I got guys stronger, powerful, more healthy. They got better and faster times, but they still couldn't hit 220. So I unfortunately experienced just the opposite. I helped players be strong and healthy and powerful and on the field, but they really weren't very good skill related on the field. So, you know, unfortunately, and sometimes I will jokingly say, I just had strong shitty baseball players. That's what I said. <laughs> and, and, but I didn't recruit them. Right. And, but, but I was part of the recruiting process because I was trying to tell them 
what they were going to get if they came here so that they would be working with somebody who had this experience as a player, as a coach, as a strength and conditioning person, as a researcher. And now I'm looking at whatever's new and out there, what might be legitimate, what can we use and bring to the table? And then I would talk to those manufacturers and try to bring that to Louisiana Tech because, hey, we'll do some research with your equipment to verify whether it works or not. And I can tell you many of the things that I've used that were, you know, that are sold as being products that are going to enhance your performance don't do anything remotely close to that. And because they're, they're based on some, some theory. This is what we think is going to happen. And we have this anecdotal evidence, right? So the kid's saying, oh, I'm faster now. I feel better. Well, you're right. I had a baseball teammate who thought he was hitting well because he had dirty, smelly socks and he wouldn't wash them. So there's some psychological aspect to everything we do in performance. But um, can you take us through a little bit of your journey on uh, on funny uh, things that you've been given to test that were guaranteed to increase performance? Because uh, I probably have uh, hundreds of them of things that like people yeah. swore by that they've sent us that I've seen. I mean, like I can remember uh, all the basketball team at my high school walking around in those shoes, you know, that had the elevated. Toe. Yeah. yeah. And uh, um, they all ended up with shin splints. Like every one of them, like they could hardly run. They like they couldn't roll forward. They're all running on their heels because the shin splints were so bad. And I remember thinking like, you know, but of course there's a video of the one dude with like the 60 inch vertical who got it using those. I mean, right. so, so can you talk a little bit about what you've seen? I mean, I'm always uh, fascinated by, you know, and a big thing we talk about at Power Athlete is, uh, you know, our underground mission statement of battle the bullshit. So I'm just kind of fascinated because yeah. you probably have seen everything. Well, I, I have, you know, friends who are now uh, major league strength coaches and a lot of people who have a business try to go to spring training like they do now. And they're saying, hey, here's a new piece of equipment that I want you to try on your professional baseball players because I believe it's going to work. And the beautiful thing that's kind of happened is it's like, you know what, we'll use it if you send it over to Szymanski at, Tech, at Louisiana Tech and he demonstrates that it works well, then we'll take a look at it. But if it doesn't pan out, we're not going to do anything with your product. So I've kind of become almost like the consumer report of baseball equipment. Nice. Oh, awesome. Which has kept, you know, uh, an ongoing line of research. So uh, without naming names or products, because I, I, I don't want to do that now. Yeah, yeah. But there's a, a product on the market currently that is a neoprene sleeve that you put on your forearms that has lead inserts. And the product is being sold. It's going to increase your slapstick velocity, your bat velocity, your golf club velocity, your backhand velocity. And I, and I, and I met the gentleman who owns the company because he was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I said, I'd be happy to do some research on your product to see if it does anything. So we did a 12-week research project here in Louisiana with a local high school program. And after the 12 weeks of utilizing it, and we did a periodized program where they took a certain number of swings over the course of the 12 weeks. One group was the control group. So they all weight trained. They all did the same exact weight training program, which I did during my dissertation. I expected basically 30 to 35% improvement in squat strength after 12 weeks. I expected 15 to 18% increase in their bench press strength, which we got, uh, similar to what we did in, in Auburn and Opelika, Alabama. And uh, Columbus, Georgia, I did another study there. This protocol, I knew what I was going to find from weight training. So now we put a bat in their hand. You take a certain number of swings, 150 swings per day. And this was based off of Coupe de Rin's research. And the group that is in the control does their weight training and swings a regular baseball bat. The other group does the same weight training program, swings the same standard baseball bat, but now they use those lead inserts on their forearm to see if that additional training or resistance on their forearms would increase the bat speed the way the manufacturer suggested it would. After 12 weeks, we did the 
post-testing? No, we did not find that to occur. After that result, I told the manufacturer what we found, and then what do you suspect they said to me? You did it wrong. You didn't do the protocol the way we would do the protocol. I said, okay, then tell me how you would do the protocol. Then they told me how to do the protocol. Then we did another study. <laughs> now we did three groups. We did it, the control group the same way that I did in the previous one, the treatment group the same way I did it in the previous one, and now I added their third group because we should find the same results in the second study for groups one and two, and then we'll see what it happens with your group three. So we did that research project, and after that study was over, we found the same thing. It did not enhance bat velocity. And so now when you think of physics or biomechanics, where's the resistance? It's on the forearm. Well, where's the axis of rotation? It's the bat handle where your hands are. So the resistance is actually not at the right position. If you're going to add resistance to an implement, the research demonstration should be at the distal end. It should be at the furthest end of the implement. And so now if you look at Coop Durin's research, he's done some things where he put like lead tape. So you can put lead tape on your golf club you know, one ounce, two ounce, three ounces, four ounces. And now you could actually swing during batting practice where there's the purpose or the intent to actually hit a ball hard. The player actually sees it and actually values probably what they're doing from a training protocol. That has demonstrated to work from his research. And so uh, and from the two research studies, the manufacturer then was obviously not happy. And uh, he has since then sold that company to a, a larger a company that actually makes uh, gloves for football and baseball. And they're still selling it though the same way though, even though the research is out there, the, it's been an abstract form. I haven't, I, unfortunately I haven't read, written those articles, but uh, then I had another company that makes gloves that have the lead rings around your finger and the weights on the back of your hand. And uh, they would use it to shoot free throws, right? Or to increase your bat speed or other things. Well, we use that in a research study. We had a control group that took a certain number of swings, 150 swings per day over the course of 12 weeks. Another group that swung their normal baseball bat or softball bat, because we had both males and females in this particular study. And then we had another product where you actually have a, a resistance band that attaches to your back arm and attaches to your back leg. So there's a resistance band from your back arm to your back leg so that when you load or go backwards as a baseball or softball athlete, you feel the resistance in the band telling you that you've actually implemented what we'll call the stretch reflex, right? You've, been, you've stretched your body out like the rubber band. And then when you swing, we'll say, in the positive direction towards the ball, then you feel the resistance in the opposite direction. Well, we did, and somebody who was a former minor league baseball player has his own hitting facility in Atlanta, Georgia. He made that piece of equipment. And in that study, the gloves that were weighted, the resistance band on the back arm and leg did nothing, anything more than the kids swinging the regular baseball or softball bat. So those types of additional supplemental pieces of equipment they are selling it, but they don't have the research to support it. At least those type of ones. Now, do the I'm trying to think. Obviously, the coaches endear you because you're you're the, you filter out the bullshit for them. But do the main do the manufacturers ever leverage you? Is like, well, what do you? How, how can we get better? 
I would imagine it's like, ah, oh, this fucking well, guy. Uh, ah, just sell it anyways. Here's the problem, and I've always thought this, is everybody's always looking for like a sports-specific one-to-one deal. Like, oh, you want to swing the bat speed? Well, let's increase bat speed or let's do all this stuff or let's put resistance bands on the uh, on the elbows that attach to the waist so that as I go back, there's eccentric mm-hmm. load, then I got to drive. I mean, people like look for these like one-to-one gimmicks when, um, you know, and I always saw this with uh, uh, with golf. Golf's by, by far one of my favorite uh, observations of sports who people assume that uh, more equipment or different equipment will somehow fix who they are instead of looking at it like, oh, yeah. well, it's, 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 it's a skill. <laughs> uh, it's a skill and it's a mastery. So, like, um, yep. uh, you know, but people always assume that it's like, you know, oh, this club or this or the, these pieces of equipment when, they, when they're looking at this kind of, like, acute one-to-one, like, mm-hmm. uh, I need to fix this one piece. Whereas, look at what would we look at? Like this systemic fix. Uh, if uh, you know most people, like, and, and if you ever watch like most, you know, golfing, which is is just kind of an observation for me. Most people are pretty decent in the beginning, but they fucking get tired because it's three hours. You're out there in the sun. You're hitting the golf. Like very few people are in shape. If you just got them in better shape and actually increased their strength a little bit and their, you know, increased durability a little, all of a sudden their ability to replicate extends. Uh, same with, you know, a lot of these things. Like if you just made the person overall stronger and faster, theoretically your body works in a systemic way. I mean, their ability to swing a bat should increase if you increase these other factors, you know, and then, but there's also a really interesting thing with baseball in terms, in terms of like uh, elasticity mm-hmm. and stored kinetic energy within tendons mm-hmm. and uh, this. And I mean, if you look at the guys that can pitch, like these dudes without any weight training can throw like in the mid nineties or faster just because, I mean, even with shitty mechanics, because of just the right. way that their, uh, their nervous systems wound and, and, you know, structurally how they're set up. And it's like, you can make that kid, you know, stronger. And this, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, football is such a, uh, a such an easier one-to-one, like maybe somebody bigger and stronger and faster, they should be able to hit harder. But a lot of these sports, it doesn't work like that. Like, well, I, right. I think not for long-term though, but if you got a novice, you got that yeah. untapped, untapped opportunity, and uh, David, correct me if I'm wrong, but you got a young kid who's just not strong enough. But fast. I mean, you think about it; it's, it's going to push them, push that need a little bit. But then it's, that's not going to work. It's forever. easier to sell somebody some gimmick for ninety for ninety nine ninety nine. Yeah, weighted gloves. That's like weighted gloves. Ooh, that somebody can do. That's super. Hey, I'll just wear these gloves on. I'm still going to hit anyway. I'll just wear these gloves and I'll get better. Opposed from like, hey, let's put somebody in a periodized strength conditioning program. Like I was excited when he was talking about, dude, we were able to get a thirty percent increase in squats and an eight, twelve to eighteen percent in bench press. I'm more excited by those numbers because I know, yeah, the control group, (laughs) because I know that those numbers translate to better sport performance on the field than any fucking gimmick out there. Mm -hmm. The problem is, and and Dave, you know, this is uh, strength conditioning isn't sexy. There's no fucking gimmick. And it's like consistency, 12 weeks of hard work. These guys had to train three to four times a week. I mean, it's like. You're like, how about you just do this program and uh, we'll just put your fucking gimmick in the, in, you know, in the drawer. I, I agree with you. I mean, if you have a, a, a high school athlete, and again, I'll talk specifically about baseball players. I've done studies in Columbus, Georgia, Auburn and Opelika, Alabama, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and now Ruston, Louisiana. And I am finding the same thing with 15 to 18 year old boys if you do a consistent program so you do the kiss program keep it simple right and you have a consistent program where you're actually testing them and monitoring them and you have gradual progressions in your program you can help them become a stronger more powerful individual which does translate to some greater bat speed and throwing velocity now to go to john's point once you have a more elite athlete i think 
their skill set is the thing that really differentiates them from others. And if we're going to talk about a baseball hitter, your vision. You know, vision is so important to hit a baseball. As you said, we got guys throwing 95 to 103 now. And so how do you hit a ball that might take you three-tenths of a second or less to actually hit? You close your eyes and swing as hard no, as you can. Uh, you, you know what? This is pretty fascinating. I mean, I, I always go back to the um, Ted Williams, you know, when uh, you know when I've told you guys the story that Ted Williams was uh, one of the best, you know, the worst hitting coach on the planet. And because, uh, you know, as they were throwing the balls, he was calling the pitches. And uh, the guys are like, how do you know these pitches? He's like, I can see the rotation of the ball. I can see the laces. And they from were the like, dugout. yeah, from the dugout. And they were like, you can? He's like, you can't? You know, uh, uh, I, I was involved in a study um, for a guy at the Newport Research Center uh, that looked at um, high-level athletes and their ability to basically uh, extend what we know is in time and kind of like slow the time down. And he was able to work with like fighter pilots and NFL players and actually had a control where he had a brother who played ML League, uh, Major League, and then had a... Uh, his brother could never get out of the minors and went through and talked about this ability to kind of slow the perception of time. And he went through like how like the brain waves and showed like, you know, at the top of each kind of peak, when you see the brain, like it takes a picture on both sides and then the ability to kind of stretch those time peaks, uh, those peaks in the, in, in the brain. And then like that ability to like, you know, give the perception of slowing time to see these things, you know, Mario Andretti talking about, you know, the faster you drove, the slower everything got. And you can hear this story kind of through the world's best. And I sometimes think for like baseball, especially, I mean, as those guys get up there, that focus to be able to see what pitch is coming, because, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as fast as that sucker's coming at you, how do those guys time that up? I mean, it, it's, yeah. it, it's unbelievable to me. Yeah, research is demonstrating that the baseball hitters that are probably the most effective or successful hitters have 2010 vision. And the best vision that I know of, of from a Japanese study that I read was 28 vision. And so if you have that type of ability to see then you can identify pitches much better. And so the ability to identify a pitch and then no location, you can actually have a, lo- a longer time to watch the ball. And if you have a more efficient swing path, then it's going to take you less time to get there. So ultimately, you create a longer time to see the pitch. And I think, John, that's exactly what you're talking about. Those are the things that happen in the brain and with vision and then how our neurologic system works all together like that. And it's really quite fascinating stuff. Well, if you look at boxers, too, I mean, the ability to like uh, see, see punches coming and be able to time these things. And people are like, man, how do these guys get in the way? And I'm, I always have said that uh, for the same reason that in the NFL, people wonder how these things happen so fast and how you're able to read and react. And I'm like, well, you got to remember at 14 years old, I was doing this job and these guys were moving fast. And as I got bigger and faster, they got bigger and faster. And so all of a sudden my perception was just, it wasn't from zero to a hundred. It was like two, five, seven, you kind of go up the staircase and you think about kids with, uh, you know, in baseball, you know, they get out there, it gets a kid who throws 40 and then 45 and then 50. And they kind of go up in these small increments allows the brain to be able to make these small pieces. And also they see other people do it. Well, that, you know, that guy hit it and this is what he did. And most really good athletes um, are like, you know, and I'm not, going to say that like this is I don't mean to be callous when I say this but uh, uh autistic monkeys like they become super focused on like I'm watching this person and now I'm going to mimic what they do and uh you know and then you know small little things in like you know being able to see these problems and then realizing that uh and I think this was pretty interesting I remember uh, talking to David Wells about pitching and he said the most dangerous dudes are the guys that uh he saw like all of a sudden get relaxed as the ball left his hand so if he saw somebody get tense when he got to, and he said, as soon as the, the ball left my hand, I knew whether or not the dude was going to hit the ball. And I was like, how do you know? And he's like, 20 years, dude. 
And also I'm hammered, so like my perception is off, <laughs> right? I mean, he had, that's how he relaxed. He's like, I got to have a couple of drinks, and he goes, I'll sling that thing. And you know, the same with true with golfers, and you know, uh, like a John bunch Daly. of yeah, John Daly, swing same oil, thing. baby, yeah. Oh, and yeah. so, uh, like, it's a uh, you know, sport performance, especially at that high level, is uh, it is so much of like opportunity, but there's also you know, you're looking at the top of the pool, so you're looking at the top of genetic situation, and you know, it's like uh, you know, in the NFL, it's a you know, it's a uh, a genetic, I guess, experiment, and like looking at like you know some of the you know most gifted individuals that, unless they got killed off early on, were destined to do this job. And so I think right. with with baseball especially, I mean, look look at the longevity. Whereas you know guys come in and they play for just like decades. And not even the longevity. It takes you know one, two, three, four years through the minor leagues just to get to the pros, and then you last. Uh, and, and then think about the Ironman. I mean, how many games those guys have to play? I mean, right. uh, to, what is that, 162 games? I mean, the amount of time right. that those guys play baseball and their dedication to craft, I mean, it's really uh, – um, I honestly – and this, this is going to sound bad too – I wonder at the intelligence of a lot of the baseball guys because think about that much of the repetitive thing. For people that are smart, like to be, have to go and do the same thing over and over again for years, I think you end up fucking putting a gun in your well, mouth. Well, that or it's like obsession, right? You just become obsessed with it. Yeah. You know, or it just becomes what you do, and this is my, you know, my chance at excellence. For me, uh, man, like I, uh, I don't know if I could go out and play 162 games a year and do that for 25-plus years. I don't know. Pay's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you're like, I am making $50 million a year, which allows me to fucking party when I want to. So there, it's okay. But, Guaranteed uh, money. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, baseball is, uh, um, is another one of those things where I always wondered if, like, you know, uh, at which point could you train yourself into, yeah. uh, uh, like, like, could, like, could you, could you develop? And, and maybe, maybe this is, uh, uh, you know, so it's maybe, like, is there such thing as a Rudy in baseball where well, you get the maybe, maybe, uh, maybe not today. I mean, I, I think 10 or 20, maybe even 30 years ago, uh, you could have guys that built them in, but I think things have gotten so, uh, like so narrow. Um, and you know, and then you think about the, the talent pool for baseball, which pulls out of cent, you know, South America and like Central America, mm -hmm. where these kids are in, like, don't even go to school and all they do is play baseball all day from the right. time they're like 10 years old and they play. I mean, yeah. it's, it's pretty, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff on YouTube with, um, and uh, Austin had me watch it, where these kids at 10 years old in like the, you know, Dominican Republic and Central America don't even go to school. All they are is in these like uh, semi pro little like 10 year old baseball leagues and they play baseball three times a day, seven days a week, and they have thousands of opportunities to play this stuff stuff to hope they get drafted at 16 or and 17. This this leads into one of my, my questions I sent you, David, is early sports specialization. So it seems right. that baseball of any sport for, for boys is the most common in which you're forced into specialization. So my right. question for you, you've been in the game for, for over two decades. Is this the culture of the sport? Is it parents pushing their pastime or is it geography? Like we say in the, the Dominican, they don't have the opportunity other than soccer and baseball. So is it, is it either of those three things? Is it all of them? What have you seen? I, I, right. So I think there's probably a combination of the three. One, you know, so I'm a parent. I have a 14-year-old son who right now is 5'11", 215 pounds. He's bigger than me. And last year he grew four inches in two months and he couldn't swing the bat because his back was hurting him so bad because of his growth. 
three weeks ago, he pulled his hip flexor because he was swinging so hard. I actually had a x-ray, no avulsion fracture. Yesterday, we had an MRI because it's been three weeks and no issue there. So he's just growing. And you know, the doctors say his growth plates are still wide open. He might be six five, six six, And I'm like, hell yeah, because now <laughs> big bodies endure in the game of baseball. I can tell you that. Again, John was alluding to that. Uh, the Jose Altuves are giving hope to little guys without a doubt. But yeah. in general, if you don't have exceptional skills as a little guy, you won't be able to be in the league long enough because you're not going to be able to be healthy to play the 162 games in 185 days, plus endure the spring training, plus if you go to the Dominican Republic and play winter ball, you're playing all year round. And so parents, I believe, truly are driving this industry right now because they do want their sons or daughters to be the next whomever. And there's a lot of people who want to be coaches, but they can't get the job at a division one school or something of that nature, or they can't uh, be in the pro baseball area. So where do they go? They develop their own academies. And so now they're all over the country. And if you go on the internet or hell, even Facebook now, I get so many dang messages every single day about here's the next swing, you know, person who's an expert and showing you how to do it and then they're selling it so now they're selling america the hope that your son or daughter is going to be able to be the next outstanding athlete and if they don't have the skills the genetic the desire probably that's going to help them to a certain extent but ultimately they they may not make it because it may not be their hope or dream it's their parents hope or dream so currently my boys don't play travel baseball and i have been personally coaching them their entire lives and now they're in junior high. One's in eighth grade. The other is a 12-year-old. He's 5'6", and he's 155 pounds. So they're both going to be probably 6'3 to 6'6 kids, which, again, I'm really happy about uh, because I know that the bigger bodies are going to be the ones that endure. But, again, uh, we've kind of fought it. I mean, and people now know don't talk to the Samanskis because they're not going to let their kids play travel ball because I want my kid to play soccer, and I want them to play basketball if they want to. I also want them to have fun. But to go back to what Tex just said a little bit, you got the kids that are in the Dominican Republic and they all, and, or Mexico or other places, and they are playing baseball year-round. Uh, three years ago, I went to Japan, and I gave three lectures in Japan. And baseball is the national pastime in Japan. And I knew that I could easily stick my foot in my mouth if I said some things that were opposed to what they believe in. But I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> so I told them, I said, and if you watch the Little League World Series last summer, they actually showed the Japanese team that won the Little League World Series their 12-hour-a-day baseball practice schedule. 12-hour-a-day. Well, I get tired after just being at work for eight hours, right? So imagine a young boy who's 11 and 12 years old playing that much. Now, their skills are truly outstanding compared to some of the other kids. But sometimes they don't have the physical abilities of some of the kids, maybe in the United States. And that's, you know, if you read that book, The Sports Gene, that was written by uh, David Epstein from Sports Illustrated. It's a great read for people because you can see how genetics plays into some success in athletics, as opposed to sometimes the genetic freak who doesn't get any better over the course of time with training. So I, I guess I think you have parents that are doing it. You have people or coaches that want to do it. And it's very expensive to play travel baseball. Uh, I can tell you most recently, I've got involved with a group called Pace Omaha, P-A-C-E, Police Athletics for Community Engagement. 
and they are having police officers in communities that have at-risk kids. And there's many ways of defining what an at-risk kid is, but they let these kids play baseball and soccer for free. They pay for their buses to and from practices and games. They have facilities that are sponsored by either corporations or by grants. They get equipment for the kids and the police officers are the coaches. And not too long ago, I saw a piece on ESPN where the Bronx, New York police officers were doing the same thing because some kids were shot and killed by a police officer in the community and the people in the community hated the police officers. And they had to find a way to get the community to embrace the police officers and the way in which they found out to do it was to have them be coaches. So now they could respect these adults who are professionally a police officer. And now they're trying to help you as a young person have fun, be part of a team as opposed to a gang and then have goals that are going to be positive for someone's community. Well, we have a district attorney here in Ruston, Louisiana, who I went in to talk to him because I said, now that I'm the department chair at Louisiana Tech, I want our students to be engaged in our community because universities have traditionally been in rural communities over the years and, and now they're getting bigger and they're kind of all over the place. But my point is that they were in rural communities so that they wouldn't be influenced by the dollars of corporations and that you would do science and evidence-based information in a place that you weren't going to be potentially tempted, we'll say, by the dark side to, to find results that really aren't the real results because someone's paying you to say these are the results. But so anyway, there, the district attorney knew about this PACE program because the former baseball coach at Grambling State University, which is just five miles down the road, is Coach Wilbert Ellis. And he's involved with the PACE program in Omaha. And they do a clinic there every year at the College World Series. And I said, you know what? This sounds great. Could we do this here? And so we're now talking about bringing this PACE program to Ruston, Louisiana, and then what's called Lincoln and Union Parish. So those are the communities that are here in north central Louisiana. And so now maybe you can get kids who don't have the money or the ability or come from broken families or whatever other, again, variables you want to describe is at risk to maybe get to play a sport that maybe they're just not because football in the South for sure is the king and probably everywhere else it's the king because kids are then they're If the kid doesn't have the money, they're going to get the football equipment for them because they want to win, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. And then maybe the same thing might happen in basketball, but basketball, you just need a ball and a goal. You can play on a playground. You can play in your backyard. You don't need the expensive $350 Easton ghost bat that is, you know, whatever you've got and, and all these other pieces of equipment that are out there. So um, we're, hopefully we're going to be doing some of those things. So parents, for sure, regionally, I can tell you regionally, there's a re research study, and I don't remember the author off the top of my head, but Major League Baseball players that grew up in the North compared to baseball players that are in Major Leagues that grew up in the South, those who played baseball in the South as major leaguers had more injuries later in their professional career because their biological age was different than their chronological age. So if a young boy is 12 years old in the South and a 12-year-old is in the North, if they play baseball 11 months out of the year in the South, then biologically their arm might be that of a 15-year-old because they've just played and haven't had the rest. So the ASMI, American Sports Medicine Institute, which is with Dr. Glenn Fleissig, and then attached with Dr. James Andrews, who's the premier surgeon in the country for Tommy John and rotator cuff surgery. They now have guidelines that are adopted by Little League Baseball and Dixie Youth Baseball. Hey, we recommend that you take three months off so that your arm has rest. I can tell you parents don't buy into that one hill of beans. I want my kids to play more and more. Well, now in the North, they have indoor facilities that are all over the place. And now the kids can play and practice year round. 
So that becomes an issue. And then you have overuse injuries. So little league elbow, shoulder problems, you have labrum problems, you have rotator cuff problems, uh, bursitis, tendonitis, you name it, man. It's, and then it kind of goes back to also some of the things you mentioned. If a young person does not know how to throw, you should not be a pitcher because you don't have the right mechanics and additional stress is being placed at the far end of the kinetic chain, the elbow or the shoulder. And so I'm a big advocate of technique, 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 and then playing, and then not a large volume. So volume becomes another issue. And so to me, volume is what breaks the camel's back. It's not the intensity of exercise. It's even intensity in the weight room is not what's going to hurt you. It's the volume that's going to ultimately get you, in my opinion. And so I try to stress those things. But again, parents who want their kids to be better, if they're not getting better by my my thought process, well, then I'm going to go play for another team because somebody else just plays travel ball and the Dixie League ball and whatever else. And now my kid can play on three different teams all year round. And that goes back to the parents just not having enough experience themselves. Yeah. I mean, the idea of like, well, I wasn't given the opportunity. If only I had been able to play more, I would have done better. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's not the fact. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, and then um, the other problem too is every parent really believes their kid is like somehow magically special and this kid's going to be different. And that's just, you know, the joy of being a parent. But at the end of the day, you're like, Uh, they're 10 years old let them go out and be kids and have fun and you know enjoy the life that uh because you know and i did i tell my kids this and i I have twin little girls that are six and little boys too i tell my girls uh enjoy this one day you're gonna have to pay bills and do all this other stuff and go to the store and take care of yourself just have fun like don't take things too seriously i guess without a doubt you know one of the beautiful things that people have today is a cell phone and a cell phone can be used as a motion capture system these days and so you have an iPhone that has 240 frames per second, and now you can videotape them, or you can get a free app, or you can upgrade for $4.95. And now you can do a split screen where you can actually see uh, Carlos Correa hitting and your child hitting, and then you can superimpose them. And now you can say, here's what the pro athlete's doing, and here's what you're doing. So I can tell you, I do videotape every single at-bat my boys have, and I, we review it, kind of like Tony Gwynn might have reviewed it. But after a while, you know what? You, if you know your swing and you're doing the right thing, you don't need to watch your video over and over again because then it becomes, I think, overkill. But it certainly allows a young person to see what they're actually doing so that when you are actually telling them, hey, you're actually bar arming or straightening out your lead elbow of your lead arm, they don't get it or understand it because they can't see themselves. Now the video, here it is, Billy. This is what you're doing. We got to try to change this in some way. So here are some drills that you can do that might help you with that. I think back on my uh, little league coach was, uh, and I remember him, he was a dick. His name was Ken Klug. And uh, he would just scream at us, hit the ball. That was it. Yeah. We get up to the bat and they would throw the ball yeah. and he would just yeah, scream, hit the ball. Me. And I remember like, uh, I, I like, I, it was one of those things where I was like, uh, there was never any like coaching, nothing on this, like no video. There was no drill. It was just screaming at us as loud as he could hit right. the ball. And if you didn't hit the ball, then uh, you need to sit down because you suck. <laughs> and then and then the next kid would get up and he would scream, hit the ball. And I remember right. sitting down and I remember like thinking like, man, I wish I knew how to hit that ball thing. And uh, he was an awful coach. And um, yeah, and I still remember him. So yeah. uh, if he's listening to this, I hope you fucking what get better. The, what do you think the odds are? Ken Klug <laughs> is listening. Never uh, you uh, never know. Uh, if, Klug, if, if he is, uh, come to Cali. Austin Kessin, uh Yeah, yeah. Email, <laughs> email and I'll show up. And I will uh, fucking punch you in your old mouth because you were a dick when I was a kid. Uh, David, one of the, uh, I guess, appeals that we, we go to bat with either parents or... Is that a pun? 
it, uh, unintended. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I knew. Uh, I most doing. good puns are unintended. Kind of, um, kind of like your life. Yeah, but so you, I lost my train of thought. Okay, one of the appeals that we go to bat. Would you with, say you're absent-minded? Nope. <laughs> one of the appeals we go to bat with. That's the third time. I love the repeater. I love the repeater. Is I guess strength training is the and doing the skips and the warm ups and all our different drills are the opportunity to build coordination, which right. then in turn could build a more coachable athlete. So we try to try to pull as much weight room time or even warm up time for practice. What are some of the I guess appeals in talking to either parents that you're connected with or sport coaches that you've worked with for kind of getting more training time for your athletes? That's always a difficult one because the sport coach always thinks it's the sport that needs more time. And so baseball is really guilty of that. I mean, at the major league level, if listeners are not aware of this, they take batting practice at, at eight o'clock or nine o'clock in the morning. Then they probably take it again before they go to lunch. Then they eat lunch at the ballpark. Then they actually take batting practice if they want at the stadium. So people can just see home runs and be, do all the oohs and ahs and wows, but they're getting their work done. So baseball players are at the field eight to 10 hours a day. And, they actually overtrain their baseball players. Now, I know any GM would probably not agree with me on that statement, but I'm not working for anybody in that capacity. So I will stick by my words on that one. They overtrain them. So if you hit in one plane of movement, you're a right-handed hitter, and you're going from your right side to your left side, well, then one side is going to be overdeveloped and one is not. And so you're going to have asymmetries in your body or imbalances, and now all of a sudden you have these oblique strains. So when I coached at Auburn, I coached a guy named Tim Hudson. Tim played for the Oakland A's and went to the Atlanta Braves and then ultimately won a World Series championship with the San Francisco Giants. And Tim was a 5'10", 5'11 guy. He was 160, 65 pounds wet at best. They always tried to put weight on Tim, but he never did. But my point is this. Tim threw 92 to 94 and put a lot of stress on his body. Well, he had, towards the latter part of his career, multiple oblique strains that ultimately, I believe, led to his Tommy John surgery on his UCL basically snapping. Because a small body doing a repetitive thing in one direction over and over again without doing all the other things that we might consider in the strength and conditioning world could potentially then lead to the overuse areas and then the injury. Now, on a personal note, I know Tim told me, you know, his last year in Major League Baseball, he was so banged up from the broken ankle that maybe you saw on TV when the guy stepped on his foot and broke his ankle when he was with the Braves uh, to uh, just being an older, you know, aging in the game and playing. You know, as you age in the game, things don't recover like they used to. And so he's like, man, I was just trying to get ready to pitch every fourth or fifth day. And I, there was, you know, no strength and conditioning. It was all the medicinal things that someone was trying to do to help me get back because of the years of playing. So repetitive motions without doing balance I think is uh, something that's got to be looked at. And then just, again, the volume issue, the volume of what they do on a daily basis can lead to problems uh, in, over the long haul. And if we don't really monitor that, and no one ever really says how many swings are you taking, for example, or how many throws are you making, that's a challenge. And when you have a young person who's the starting shortstop or center fielder or the catcher, and they're also their premier pitcher on the team, those guys are throwing all the time. And there's actually been research done on that as well. The ones who throw the ball the most, obviously, is the pitcher with the greatest velocity and the most volume compared to any other position. But the other position is the catcher because the catcher is doing the up, down, up, down, and also probably tossing the ball back, but is making the same number of throws or more than the pitcher because they're doing things in warm-up, in the bullpen, then the game. And it's just 
gets it keeps going and going and going. Um, so I mean, that's what I would tell you, kind of from that perspective. And I mean, you you bridge that gap to other areas, right? A lot of shit we try to unwind and undo with some of our sport of fitness oh, people, yeah. right? Uh, just same repetitive movement patterns might be a different implement, might have a different name, but it's like you're doing the same shit over and over. Mm-hmm. And and David, just like you're saying, it's the sport of volume, right? Mm-hmm. Who can endure longer? And it's when we go in and try to counsel some of these, well, I shouldn't say some of them, like a hand, the handful that we have worked with about undoing all the volume, like you said, the things you would consider doing with like a pitcher that would be that antagonist or balancing of the overuse just right. let's try to even up the accounts a little bit. Uh, people are fucking so threatened by that idea. But I, I think part of that is ego because they are so good at uh, one thing, right? Whether it's pitching, batting, or, you know, squatting and doing pull-ups. Then all of a sudden we put them in a a rotation with the opposite side or doing something with the left hand. If and they're it feels writing. weird. It, it mm-hmm. feels weird. They're not good at it after the first try. And then... Oh, that that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we it's like John with empathy. Well, I mean, dude, it's like uh, um, people are never like they, they think about this until you force somebody to do something on their opposite side. Um, you know, they never really develop the skill. I mean, think about like if uh, if you like just try to do this drive with your left foot. So on the accelerator and the brake, that just use your left foot and see you know how it how, how it both. feels. No, just one. Just uh, like kind of mm-hmm. kick, kick your right leg over. And I know this because I tore my ACL and I couldn't drive with my right foot. So I had to drive with my left foot. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was weird. And then all of a sudden it wasn't weird. And, uh, you know, and so I, I, or, you know, my shoulder, like I have no internal rotation because of the shoulder tear. Uh, so I learned to throw a ball with my left hand. And it was awkward at first. And I looked like, you know, mm-hmm. like that dad on the, on the uh, Volkswagen, oh, the Volkswagen commercial. Awesome. But now I actually, I think I throw better with my left hand. So, but, but like here, here comes the thing, man. Like people, um, when somebody can't do something, their first mode is to shy away from it and then fucking cast stones at it. Instead of looking at it and being like, hey, if this is something I can't do, maybe if I can learn to do this better, it might improve my overall performance. And this, this goes into, I guess, inherent in the sport of lacrosse. I got away with only right hand in high school. You can't do that in college. So it was forced, and I actually had direction with my left, and I'm better left-handed. But it was, uh, I can't imagine, maybe do... I guess baseball players force switch hitting as a way to get better at your dominant hand or do coaches... I think the smart, co- the smart coaches or players do hmm. because they actually, uh, they realize that it's the ones who will say, don't think out of the traditional ways of training that stay. I always got to do the same thing because is the way we've always done it. I mean, I, I had a, a teammate in high school who brought his baseball glove to practice in a briefcase because he said he's coming to work and that, and, and he could throw with both hands, so he was amphibious. And I said, uh, amphibious is with water and being underwater. It's ambidextrous that you're talking about. <laughs> but I tell that joke all the time because, yes, I think if you can throw with both hands or you can kick with both hands or you have the ability to run in, in you know, multi-directions, right? And playing other sports allows people to do that. And oftentimes if a, a young person is only playing one sport, they certainly do learn those motor patterns, but they might not learn to be proficient at other things that might actually help them in the sports they're really best at. Uh, you know, my background was soccer and baseball in high school. And then I played, I played basketball in junior high, but I was also an artist. So my, my first degree, I didn't even mention this is in fine art, drawing and painting. Well, my eye 
I trained my eye to look at details. And I really believe that helped me as a hitter because I could identify pitches. Now, ultimately, again, I didn't make it to where I wanted to go to, but I still could identify it. Now, if I knew more about the vision stuff, there's actually vision training that's out there. And uh, I have worked with a, an optometrist who works with many major league baseball teams and football programs that has a computerized software program that you can utilize or purchase and you wear a pair of glasses that have a red lens and a blue lens you use your computer you use a like a playstation game pad that interfaces with your usb port and you can work on convergence and divergence and depth perception and there's ultimately nine different variables that you can train that could make your eyes better but i can also tell you now the research is coming out that the people who are gamers these esport people they also have fantastic vision because they're focusing on all the little things by playing a video game. So video games might be another way of training the eyes that we just really aren't aware of yet. And then that actually turns into ability to focus. So that might actually help somebody be better in school so that now they can focus on their teacher and actually get better grades. Ooh, that would be amazing. So now you can do that. Well, I can tell you Louisiana Tech is right now looking at having an e-sport team. Like I think 42 other universities are looking at having an e-sport team where they're going to be giving scholarships to kids. Why? Uh, I will say this one uh, as a non-department head person not working for Louisiana Tech. Well, I am. Universities need money. Why? Because the state legislators are not providing the funds that they used to. And now universities have to think like a business and find ways of getting money without raising tuition so that tuition is already way too high for most schools around the country. So how can you find another economic means to support your faculty, your facilities, and whatever else you got? So look for that stuff coming if you're not already aware of it, gentlemen. Esports is going to be probably mm. university Nate scholarship Austin. programs. Well, that's yeah. Nate Austin's dream come true. I'm Luke, telling you, you still have eligibility. Ooh, I'm back, <laughs> bitches. <laughs> and we we had uh, the Rays sports psychologist Vince Lodato um, okay. out of Tampa Bay, and I actually coached his son in college ball, so I went down to visit, and he um, he's got a patent on the. Uh, some of that technology or the right or oh, the rights to Florida using it but it was mm -hmm. pretty cool and um, so I got to mess around with that with the goggles and then the the games and the numbers and counting 3d all this crazy stuff so it it is pretty jiggy and uh, I don't know the rays the rays were using it that decade that they were they were money um, let's see the one thing I will tell you yeah. about vision training it is really hard to quantify whether it enhances performance because how are you going to define enhancing performance they're defining it as a sport by wins and losses. Well, you can't do that. If you can see the ball better, then that's an advantage. Now, whether you actually hit it successfully or get on base successfully, that's yeah. another thing. Mm -hmm. So you have to decide what are the variables that you want to identify as your dependent variable. What do you want to know? Well, if you want to know if he hits it on the sweet spot of the bat more frequently, which I would propose would be the variable you want to look at, that would be a way of saying Ivan B, he has more good contacts than he's ever had before and now that allows him to put the ball in play better than maybe before or maybe the person has more walks than ever before because now they can identify a ball as a in a strike and now they're more selective at the plate i actually read a research article last night that talked about kids who get drafted out of high school compared to kids who get drafted out of college they have never developed a hitting approach that they ultimately get into in college and so now the players that get to the major leagues the ones that are typically the high school guys that make it to the major league baseball, they're more aggressive hitters. And then they have all these, you know, analytics and they're trying to decide who are the better hitters and all the other stuff you can get into. And uh, it, it becomes really interesting. And then just this morning, I'm listening to the, uh, 
or maybe it was last night, I was listening to the Texas Rangers spring training game. And one of their players, uh, Delano DeShields, was talking about, you know, I do watch video and, and I do want, like some of the analytics, but man, I just got to be able to feel it. And I completely agree with him. There's only so much we can do with analytics. And if you put all your eggs in one basket, I think you're going to find out you're going to have a problem because you got to have people who have played the sport, coach the sport, understand the science, and be able to talk what I call coach ease and science ease because you need to have interpretation of information that's meaningful to a player. Because if it's not meaningful, and as I think, uh, John, you might have said, to a to maybe the non-intelligent hitter or the or the player that might not be as as uh, the college-bound person, you got to explain it to them like you're a sixth grader, like um, like uh, Denzel Washington in the movie Philadelphia. Explain it to me like I'm a second grader. Simplify it for me, right? And, and that's to me, that's the whole beauty of what I've been able, I think, to do over the course of my career. I wasn't able to make it. I figured out I better find another way of doing it so I can help some others. And now I can talk very technical with somebody, but I can also simplify it and tell a young person, hey, do this. And you got to define whatever this is. And for me, it might be keep your front foot closed when you hit. Because you always hear parents say, keep your head in, keep your head in. Well, if you go down the kinetic chain, if the toe opens up and points towards the catcher, towards the pitcher, then their knee opens up, their hip opens up, their shoulder opens up, and then their head is the end result of that poor foot placement that is down the kinetic chain. So for me, I have a little saying that I give to kids. Front foot closed, head down, swing high. So finish, or sorry, finish high. I want them to finish high because I want them to try to hit the ball hard and drive it. So sometimes when we're <laughs> in the baseball uh, games, and again, 11-year-olds, they're singing that song in the dugout while the kid's <laughs> coming up to bat. Front foot down, <laughs> head, or front foot closed, head down, finish high. And so this also becomes a little thing where they can do a little dance to it. But if that's what helps a kid understand the biomechanical principles, fantastic, man. That's better for them. Luke and I are going to take that to the dugout for our softball league. Uh, <laughs> one of us will. I'll tell you. What the did more you, coachable. What were, you, what were you batting? I all singles. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I could not. I couldn't drive the ball. It was just little plunks behind the the second just baseman. Pew sad. pew pew. Yeah, little little BBs. And uh, uh, you know, to hear Summers got... tell it though, every hit's on a rope for. Uh, oh, I rip it, baby! Grip it and rip it. Uh, my front foot's in, my head's down, Straight and I, sw- to the I left finish fielder. high, baby. Finish high. I'm, dude. I'm walking or I'm getting singles. I'm a. I'm the catcher, uh, dude. I'm a no, first you're batting. Swing. You know what it is? You're consistent. Yeah. Good old, good old consistency, McQuilkin. Mm-hmm. Slow and steady, like my driving. <laughs> yeah, mosey. All right, uh, Dave, I want to get into kind of performance-based, but now on the training side. Baseball's okay. a beautiful performance-based test, but at the same time, how do you, in building your kind of strength programs or guiding your students to build strength <laughs> programs, kind of build performance-based tests? Because there's a lot of margin for error with the barbell, as we've seen sure. with a lot of football programs. So how do you suggest to your students kind of tracking effectiveness of a program? Well, one, you have to know the sport. Two, you have to know what the coaches actually want. Because if, if you don't provide information that coaches want, then you will not become relevant to them because you're not giving them the, the answers to the questions that they may have. So long ago, when I first started doing my research, I can't tell you how many coaches I heard say, you gotta have great grip strength to have great bat speed. And I can tell you that is not an accurate statement whatsoever. 
But my research is that article has been out there. I don't know since I don't know, shoot maybe two. I, don't know, I have to look back at it. Maybe for probably 15 years that article's been out there. Well, if a baseball coach doesn't read an article, then what's the point of my article? Because I really need to get the information to the coach. That's really where it needs to go because they're the people who are making decisions. Now, I can say also, if you talk to athletes, and now athletes have that information, athletes will eventually become the coaches, and that's how baseball or any sport changes. Coach, the players become more educated. They want to know more. And then when they're in a position of authority or a decision maker, they now implement that stuff. And that's why I think baseball is changing because you got guys, younger guys that are general managers of teams that are telling managers who might be old school people, hey, man, we've got some more information that gives us quantifiable data that supports why we're going to do this as opposed to that. So you got all the hitting shifts that are on today. you got guys that are relief pitchers or starting pitchers and why they might be in those roles as opposed to not being in a, a different role. But again, you've got to know what you're going to assess. So we certainly can look at anthropometric data. I want to know how tall you are. I want to know what your body weight is. I want to know your percent body fat. I can tell you in all the data that I've ever looked at, body fat matters for men. Body fat does not matter for women. As, as I'm looking at softball players versus baseball players, because a, a woman who's playing softball plays on a smaller field than a baseball player does, and body mass translates into momentum, and momentum imparted into the ball from a, a bat that might weigh 23 ounces ball go far you know you don't know, you know, it's not something ingenious but so the drop and drive type of mentality for those that are hitting home runs for for women have at it man swing hard have more body mass because you're gonna be able to hit the ball harder uh, but by the same token i would probably tell a woman if you can swing a, a heavier bat the same speed as your lighter bat then swing the heavier bat because the heavier bat will impart more force into the ball and the ball will go farther or come off it harder whichever or or both so th those are important things to uh, identify. And so, um, so anthropometric data, height, weight, percent body fat's important. Depending on the sport, it also might be the hand size, the wingspan of somebody, because now longer levers in biomechanics relate to physics. And now all of a sudden, you might be able to have a greater arm acceleration, which then relates to maybe greater pitch velocity, which is something that you know they want longer leaner guys right um uh, they're free and easy is the expression that baseball coaches or scouts might use and they don't throw with any effort they're not a max effort guy which i really never identified that one truly because if you want to throw it hard you're going to have to give a max effort over and over again but maybe you make it look easier than the other guy does i bet if we had a metabolic cart so now they have um uh, Cosmed makes a, what's called a K5. It's a portable metabolic cart that you can put on their back or their chest with a mask on their face, and now you can collect expired oxygen carbon dioxide. Well, that tells us the fuel that you're going to be utilizing for energy. So baseball pitching is really an anaerobic power sport, so I would imagine it's all carbohydrate utilization, right? It's ATP, PC system, and maybe some carbs that are getting in there. My point is now, if we know that, then we actually know the intensity at which the person is working and stop saying that someone makes it look easy when they really just look easy, but they're really giving you a great effort and they can sustain it over and over again. So you might want to know the fitness level of your athletes. You know, again, baseball pitchers, even football players. Why might a football player have heat-related illness in Texas if they're overweight? Well, because probably their VO2 max is really poor. If their VO2 max is really poor, then they can't recover from the fast offense or defense that they're trying to play today. And now in a double, a two-a-day or a three-a-day program in the Texas heat, for example, 
your player can't recover, they're dehydrated, and you're just causing their own heat-related illness that ultimately could cause the demise of a young person, which is happening way too often these days. And then we got all the rhabdomyolysis issues that are going on in our country. And, you know, we got football players that that's happening to. And I read an online article recently, the University of Texas volleyball, women's volleyball team had rhabdomyolysis. Well, volleyball players don't need to have intense training like that over, over two hours and doing something that's high intensity. Nothing that they do lasts more than probably five to 10 seconds in their game. Again, that's another thing that I can get on my high horse on that one. But what are the metabolic systems that you're going to use? in the sport and then train your athletes that way and then find out how good they are at those type of events. So you still could use a 5-10-5 pro agility in baseball like you would football because you got to change directions as an infielder, as an outfielder, as a base runner. You certainly could look at the traditional 60-yard sprint. But for me, I actually have timing gates and I do it at 10 yards, 30 yards, and 60 yards. 10 yards tells you how good of a start they got. 30 yards tells you how good of acceleration they had, and 60 yards will tell you max velocity mechanics. Well, in baseball, you're never running 60 yards straight. You're going to be taking right angles. So then really we should be also testing our baseball players or softball players on the field running bases because that's what they do. They run at right angles, and how well do they navigate the field? And then look at reaction times because that's important. Look at their vision. I believe that's important. If a young person doesn't have good vision, then yes, go get corrective vision. So go get glasses or, or uh, uh, corrective lenses so that you have your contacts. But ultimately, if you want to be a big leaguer, man, go get LASIK eye surgery. Go correct your vision because now if you're wearing contacts and the wind's blowing in San Francisco and the dirt gets in your eye, a guy's throwing 95 miles an hour and you can't see it, then you're not going to be hanging around a whole lot because you missed out, right? I still, I still want to know strength. I still want to know power and how you can get power today. There's so many different pieces of equipment that are out there. And, man, we, we're bombarded by equipment these days. And every year you go to a conference and there's new app for something, a new piece of equipment for something. There's now, you know, markerless 3D motion capture systems that estimate force production and biomechanics, which I think is very useful if you have a large volume of players that you want to analyze but if you want quantifiable data that you're probably going to get published in a research article currently a marker 3d motion capture system is what reviewers want to see and so you know uh, dr glenn fleissig over at asmi in birmingham they've got the premier facility in the country maybe the world that does biomechanical research on baseball pitchers and so now they actually have profiles as a high school baseball pitcher, college baseball pitcher, pro baseball player, here's what you should be doing as you go through, go through what are called the six steps or the six phases of baseball pitching. And if you're not in this position at this particular time in your pitch delivery, then you are going to have a breakdown in your mechanics somewhere that might ultimately cause that elbow or shoulder issue. So for a baseball coach to understand that I think is very important. Now, how they utilize that equip, uh, information or equipment to identify that to their player that's another thing because you got to simplify things so that a player doesn't have to look at hey what's the valgus stress on the elbow well shoot they don't even know what the hell valgus stress is most people have no clue what it is but there are forces that are the kinetics of it and then we have the kinematics of things we have to understand that and any coach any player who wants to be outstanding needs to understand their body mechanics and how they can change it because to me, as we've been talking over this course of time now, strong and powerful athlete who has the right mechanics of movement 
they are probably going to be the most successful athletes because they actually have those variables that are associated with greater uh, success in sport. And then you've got to be able to track these things. And so tracking becomes very important because when you talk to manufacturers of companies, if you don't have the same people doing it and it's not a um, valid and reliable piece of equipment, then you might not have as accurate of information. And so now you might be giving inaccurate information to somebody. So testing it, monitoring it, and then utilizing it to train your athletes. So where are your athletes deficiencies? And can I help you make those better? And if you're the you know, minor league baseball player who wants to get to the big leagues, you bet your butt they're going to pay money to go find that out because they want to be in the major leagues and they want to make the, you know, uh, what's the, the minimum now is I think $567,000 a year, I think is the minimum for a, a major leaguer. I'll take but, it. You know, you know, yeah, without a doubt. So learning this type of information that I think is really important. And then if baseball, pro baseball teams, I, I think if they start doing this, they're going to try to make this stuff their own information. So they're going to say, this is my own, you know, just like a supplement company. This is my own supplement, you know, blend. And I can't release this information because I want my team to be better than your team. Well, one of the reasons why thus far in my career, I've never worked for a pro baseball team or never sought it out is I never, well, early in my career, I never thought they really valued this information. And if I felt that I had a lot of good information to give, but you weren't going to listen to me, then I don't want to work for you because maybe at that time I'm smarter than you. So I don't want you to tell me how to do my job. It's, it's, it's not going to be a good working environment for me. As I've gotten older to do all this research, to, to work with a pro baseball team, at least again, back in the years, they weren't doing any research and they weren't interested in research. They just were able to draft the new kid or sign the free agent and we'll just get rid of the player that we don't want. Well, in other countries, they don't do that. You know, in Germany and France, Australia and other countries, they actually have programs that develop their kids and have long-term athletic development. And they, it really starts at, at, in, the, in the young ages of youth and go all the way through wherever they end up being. And, you know, now the NSCA has got with the uh, 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 Australian strength and conditioning people and the UK strength and conditioning people, and they're, they're now developing these long-term athletic development models. But one of the problems with what's happening is that some of the coaches that are at the high school level don't think high school kids are youth. And so they're actually just, you know, they're arguing over terminology. Everywhere in the world, youth goes through 18 years of age, except the United States of America. So to me, get over the terminology and just come up with a better way of, or a progressive way to train the athlete that's better for them. And then ultimately, it'll be better for your community if you're a high school program or better for your college athletes or better for pros and this is where sports science then okay so now my phd is in exercise physiology but in my probably today world i probably tell you i'm a sports scientist not an exercise physiologist anymore because i've become maybe a little bit more specific in what i'm looking at and that's what we're trying at least part of our program here at louisiana tech is trying to build that type of sports performance program so that people who want to know this type of information that applies directly to what an athlete's doing come to this program and you can get that. You know, there are some other programs that are out there doing it, but one of the problems in the academic situation is there's not a lot of grant money. And I listened to Brian Mann's talk that you guys had with him previously, and Brian said the same thing. Nobody's giving grant money or paying for sports performance research in the United States. And so if we don't have that, then we have to do that on our own. And Brian said he's been doing it on his own. Literally, I was doing it on my own, and I was buying equipment with my own money because I couldn't get anybody to give me grant money to buy the equipment I wanted. 
So now I kind of have my own, uh, I call it my traveling lab. I got a catcher's bag that has the wheels and I have my equipment in it. And now I can just take it to where I want to go and I can assess somebody. But now with a cell phone, a pocket radar gun and the blast unit on the end of your bat, I can test your bat velocity. I can get the biomechanics of your swing and I can give you your exit velocity coming off your bat. And it only cost me 500 bucks to a thousand bucks to do it all. Yeah, all as opposed to right? $200,000 for a motion capture system. And yeah. you had an article come out in 2017, and you said it took you a, a few years to get this published. And yeah. you brought up some some solid points that from this article in that in your previous comments. So I'd love to dive into that and kind of, I guess, share it with our audience. Yeah. So the article is now published, if people are interested. It's in the Journal of Intercollegiate Sport, and it is called Servant or Service, a Problem and a Conceptual Solution. And so Dr. Guy Hornsby, who's at the uh, West Virginia University, is the lead author. Uh, Dr. Ben Gleason, who's here at Tech with us. Uh, Dr. Brad DeWeese, Dr. Dan Wathen, Meg Stone, Dr. Kyle Pierce at LSUS in Shreveport. Uh, John Waggle, who's at uh, East Tennessee State University. And then Dr. Mike Stone were all the authors. So these are some really powerful, or not powerful, knowledgeable people who've been doing this for a very long time, who are unfortunately kind of tired of the way the system is working. Because strength and conditioning coaches are unable to get what I would call a decent working or paying job in our current society. And so strength and conditioning people have to take internships for $1,000 a month for the year. So now that you're telling me that if they're going to put in 40 to 60 hours a week, they're only going to make $12,000 a year. I believe that's some violations of some... Uh, wages in our country. It's not even minimum wage, right? But universities probably get around it somehow because they're calling it an internship. Well, if the person's not actually in your academic program earning a master's degree or PhD, then it can't, in my opinion, it shouldn't be called an internship. But I don't, you know, but I'm not going to get into an argument about that. But the point is, is that they're hiring somebody for no money to try to help develop the athletic ability of athletes and division three programs and AI programs, division two programs probably have one strength coach or no strength coach. And then division one programs might have one head strength coach, maybe one or two, maybe three uh, head assistants. And then they have a, an army of graduate assistants or something of that nature. And so the big power five type of schools, they definitely have strength coaches that make a large salary and they have uh, a large I'll call army of people that are helping them train all the different athletes at their respective schools, which is necessary because there might be, I don't know, 30 to 40, maybe even more teams for males and females at a given institution. And you need to have people on the floor making sure that those athletes are doing things correctly. And so part of this article is talking about is a strength coach providing a service or are they a servant to the actual sport coach? And in this article, we know we've, say what we believe right now strength coaches are a servant to the head sport coach and traditionally that's going to be the head football coach or the head basketball coach and now they're hiring their own person if you hire your own person then you're con potentially controlling what you're going to allow them to do and then you could then have that hanging over their head if you don't do what i want you to do then i'm not going to retain your services right i'm going to fire you because you're not doing what i believe is necessary well, one of the things that we bring out in the article is that potentially some sport coaches may not actually have the academic background 
in sports science or exercise science or biomechanics or anything related to the kinesiology field. And if that's the case, and they're telling somebody who does have a formal education that might be through a master's or even higher, how to do their job, then that for us becomes problematic because now these people have spent their entire young life or career trying to become the best they can possibly be to only have the athlete's best interest at hand and to enhance performance. So why wouldn't you let that person do their job? That's what you hired them to do. But if the sport coach has a problem with one of the things you've done because they're not familiar with it. And again, this was talked about earlier in this conversation where if you're not familiar with something, hey, don't do it because we don't know if it works. Well, the person who has the master's or the PhD probably does know that it works. And I do want to use it or implement it. Um, you know, I can tell you a story where, unfortunately, one of the places that I was coaching, uh, one of our baseball players in the beginning of the season in February, when it's traditionally colder, was running down to first base, pulled his glute uh, max, running down to first base. He was our starting shortstop. We didn't have a backup that was anywhere near that caliber of an athlete. He was out for a week and a half or so with his strain. The head baseball coach came up to me and said, hey, what did you do in the weight room yesterday? Did you squat? Well, yes, we did squat, but it wasn't a max squat. We were doing speed strength or things that would be powerful. So we had lower uh, um, uh, percent on the bar. So we might have been doing something, and I don't remember exactly, but it might have been like 65% of their one rep max on the bar. We might have been doing reps of three or four or something like that to accelerate the bar as fast as you can. Well, in my professional opinion, that's not going to be something that's going to cause somebody to have a glute max strain running down the, the first baseline. It could simply be something else like, hey, man, it was cold out there. And maybe the warm up that he did wasn't the optimal one. Or in baseball, you warm up three hours before the game. Then there's batting practice for both teams. Then you go back out on the field and you run three or four sprints and then you go play. Well, it happened in the first inning. So, you know, that stuff happens, man. And you caught you caught flack for it, I assume. Uh, I mean, for a little bit, but yeah. the coach the coach really though did hire me to do my job, and uh, you know I actually went and got articles that said, hey, in season training for baseball athletes should be this. So you know, make sure that we're doing this. Yeah, you're able to substantiate everything. But I can tell you what ended up happening was it wasn't until the baseball players went to the head baseball coach and said, coach, we need to be squatting, that the coach said, okay, let's go squat again. So it was the players that had that influence on the head coach because, you know, the problem is that the head coach knew that if our starting player isn't on the field and we lose, then we could all lose our jobs. So what's the end game? So he didn't want to lose his job. And at that time, I was probably young enough to be like, I'm never going to lose my job. I'm really good at what I do. Well, (laughs) you know, that was a huge mistake on my part early on in my career when that's happened. But the point is that I felt a certain way that what we should be doing was a good thing. And uh, ultimately, we did get to do it. And but you know, if, if your player, if you don't have your best players on the field and you lose, then yeah, you will lose your job. Mm-hmm. And then I, I will say this: when the head baseball coach that I worked for uh, was let go, he had two more years on his contract, which ultimately that institution gave him. So then he was out of pro out of um, collegiate baseball for two years. Well, now where am I going to go if the head coach that really that I would like to work with isn't coaching? because he was actually still getting his contract money for the next two years and to not be a coach if he elected to do so. And that's what he did elect to do. And so I then was out of baseball. And that's ultimately when I went to Tulsa, Oklahoma, like I said, early on in in this conversation. And and that's when I kind of got out of college baseball. And then I said, you know what, I don't want my job to be predicated on whether someone gets fired because of wins and losses, because 
for what I believe I was doing at the time and what I have done since then, I think I've brought a lot of positive things to the table that would only make performance better. So I should be evaluated on what I can enhance the player's abilities or um, performance skills. I shouldn't be evaluated on whether we win or lose. And you know, that's the double-edged sword in strength and conditioning. You'll get fired as a strength coach because you did something that they didn't want. But if they win, they don't give you any credit. <laughs> so I'm like, wait a minute, this, this doesn't seem to very, be very fair or equitable here. I, I don't get that. There's Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of backwards with the industry, unfortunately. Yeah. So you got Without this, David, you got this article out. You got this thing taken together. Uh, it's all yeah. published. And what What's the response? Well, there were some that had like, like hell yeah, brothers screaming from the rooftops, right? Because that were somebody's finally telling the story, right? What's kind of the reality of it? And then you have others that are like, it falls kind of on a deaf ear where, you know, yeah, this is the way it is. We're not going to change it. So why are you complaining about it? Well, anything that wants to be changed, you've got to have people who are kind of fighting the good fight. So I only hope that this is going to stimulate further discussion. And this is going to be brought to administrators type of um, their desk so that they could possibly read it. And then maybe there can be some changes because actually in this article, we actually talk about changing the athletic department model or structure. Currently, we have an athletic director and then all the sport coaches and other administrators underneath the athletic director. In this actual article, you will actually read that you know what, maybe we should have a dean of athletics who's kind of like the CEO of your company. And then you have your traditional athletic director who might be the sports business director. And they run the business side of it. So they're doing the sports marketing, the sports information, the development, getting all the funds that are necessary for an athletic program, which are a key role to someone's job. But underneath that dean of athletics, you also have a second person and that is a high-performance director. So the high-performance director oversees the coaches, the strength coaches, works with the medical staff, works with the athletic trainers and sports nutrition people, and they look at what are the best practices to help our athletes perform optimally and do well not only on the field but also in the classroom and be successful young people. And so this is a model that are, that's used in other countries. And again, I mentioned, I think, Germany and France and Australia. They're doing these things because of necessity, I think. Whereas we still have this large, you know, money-making machine in, in college athletics that money dictates how decisions are being made. And so this is how it's working. We're not changing it. But at, at some point, some other people are going to probably look at this model and say, you know what, maybe we should take a look at this because how many more athletes need to die for somebody to say, you know what, we should change something. Uh, or, or go to the hospital for some, yeah. from a practice where maybe – if you know this uh, high performance director would actually be making sure that they're doing the best practices. So this person should have a PhD, should be a former player, be, be a former strength and conditioning person and be a, a scientist of some kind. So they understand all this information or material that all these other people that would be underneath them should be doing. And that way, maybe we can actually have better practices and um, maybe, maybe have a, a possible real student athlete because we really don't have student athletes at the division one level probably anymore. They're athletes and there's it's money making. And, and then we see all the interesting things on ESPN and about who's doing what or for what money or who's doing what to whom <laughs> for unspeakable things that should be happening in sports. And you know, then that gets me into my the topic of ethics and sports. 
Dave, that's a whole different podcast. Yep, altogether. I agree. You get somebody else. I'll be. You could talk for hours on ethics and sports. So yeah, you, you're uh, you've worked your way at at Law Tech into a position in which you can create change. And so as the department Correct. chair of kinesiology, and I'd love to introduce kind of your goals in this position for your education department. Well, thank you for asking me that question, because that's certainly one of the things that I'm trying to do here. And with the faculty that we currently have here, I had to present them with a vision as to where we might be able to go in the future if we collectively agree that this is a good model. And so first and foremost, I do want to have a faculty that loves what they do, is here for students, and has ethics or best practices. And I believe we do have those individuals all here that are looking out for those students that are in their respective areas. And so now we're looking at how can we enhance our programs. So by enhancing programs, you could we're actually looking at proposing, and we're actually doing this tomorrow at our faculty meeting, we're proposing a new minor in sport performance at Louisiana Tech so that athletes who are at this institution sometimes academically are not able to have the GPA that they need in a specific major. So now they have to go what is called interdisciplinary studies in on this particular campus. So now they can get three minors in specific areas that they choose that can be part of their degree program. Well, why not have an athlete learn something that pertains specifically to them? Now, don't get me wrong, we have minors in uh, exercise science and health currently, and we're actually going to be changing those also because we want to make them better. But my point is, is that if you could have an athlete take, or, uh, take classes in a minor that are like strength and conditioning, sports nutrition, sports psychology, motor learning, and uh, functional anatomy, and they learn about their body, well, then when they're working with a strength coach, they should understand that, hey, this strength coach knows what they're talking about and is looking out for my best interest. So now I should be, have a greater motivation to work harder because they're only trying to enhance my ability and I can see it. Now, you could also flip that. If the athlete becomes more educated and they figure out that the strength coach doesn't understand this or the sport coach doesn't understand it, then they might know that, hey, I'm not actually in the best situation. And you know, maybe I've got to look at it differently. And you know, now all of a sudden, I don't want to say someone's going to transfer because of that. But you know, if you didn't believe in what your coaches were doing with you, then you certainly have the ability to, to potentially make a decision like that. Right. But to me, the goal is really to educate the athlete and let them learn something that they think is important. Because if an athlete, like myself, doesn't become a pro athlete, then what are you going to potentially do? Many athletes want to be coaches because they love the sport that they've been playing for their young life. And so now if we give them a greater education and then we provide them with evidence-based information, now they are going to be the better coaches in the future. And if they do become the general managers or the athletic directors in the future, then this is going to help implement change in the future. So that's something that we're looking at doing. And then if that goes well, we're actually thinking about having a sports performance major with 120 hours, which would be potentially unheard of because I don't think anybody's doing anything like it around the country. But this is, again, is geared at a major for athletes. So they get to learn, you know, maybe things that are in business, things that are in the, the nutrition department and not necessarily in kinesiology. And then again, in psychology and then in education to be a better coach and, and you put all these different academic areas together to make you better what you ultimately want to be. And that's a better coach. Uh, yeah, the, it's amazing. I love the, the podcast format because it gives us an opportunity to reach out to experts like yourself. And it seems that all of these experts, they, they found their, their niche or their level, right. their base level of knowledge on their own. And there has not been that formal track to help 
you know, right. help them establish a, a base faster. And then right. who knows what creativity within this industry can, uh, can come from that. Yeah, and so then people who are professors that are kind of in the strength and conditioning area tend to gravitate towards one another because they actually want to collaborate with one another. Well, all of a sudden, if you can actually hire people who want to do something similar, then this is how you'll develop these type of programs that will potentially change or, uh, or at least modify maybe what some programs that you're offering at your school might be. And so you know, right now at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee is where Dr. Mike Stone is, and they have a PhD program in sports performance and in sports physiology. So if you want to be a professor, you go sports physiology with your PhD. If you want to be a coach, then you go the other direction. And so now these people might be taking jobs, believe it or not, for the Chinese national basketball team, which actually one of our graduate students is now, that's what he's doing. He couldn't get a job as a strength coach in the United States, so now he's working in China because they want to know what we know to help their athletes and they're embracing the sports science stuff. So people have to go elsewhere before maybe our society or our educational system or athletic systems change, but hopefully they will. That's our hope. And, you know, Dr. Stone has been fighting the good fight for his entire career. And uh, I am very appreciative of what he's done. And I'm, he allowed me to come to his, to the university and see what he and Meg Stone and, and others that are there are doing so that I could learn from them and then think about how could we accomplish some of those things here? Because, you know, if you don't have the money and the support, then it's really going to be just what you end up doing on your own. Just like when I was a, a strength coach and I was working for free, hey, I could only do whatever I could do or however many hours I could put into the, into the day. But as you get more and more people and then you develop curriculum that is specific to it, and then you have a master's program where, so now we're looking at further developing our sports performance master's program where we actually are going to be working with our athletic teams. But if our athletic teams aren't interested for various reasons, then that stifles that process. So then we have to go to high schools in the local area. Hey, are you interested? Well, usually high schools are understaffed and they want help. So now all of a sudden our graduate students can go be assistant coaches at high schools and now they can go get some practical experience that helps them use the information that they learn from their academic courses that were specifically in those areas. So now the student gets the academic and the hands-on experiences that might allow them to get a job somewhere in the future. Um, a, a model, a model. So I coached at Georgetown University, and a model they have set up for their interns. I I always valued because it from six a.m. to maybe one, two, or three in the afternoon, you'd hit it with the collegiate athletes, and then they give you the paid opportunity at one of the local private schools. So then you go coach from three to six. You're able to at least you know right. put food in your mouth, and maybe that's a year or two. But it was a uh, and you're coaching. You're not kind of holding a clipboard. And you can go and create your own programs and kind of figure it out with some some younger, more durable athletes and uh, kind of find your voice. So while I do appreciate kind of the the diving deep into the bookends, if we don't get that opportunity to coach alongside that, you know, it's it's not going to be as optimal. Right. I agree. And, and this is where, you know, many of us probably believe we're trying to convince other people that this is a better model. Well, until the right people get into those leadership positions and value what we potentially can bring to the table as sports science individuals or this community of people, it's still going to be hard pressed to make it happen. But again, you still have, you know, they're going to be called the cutting edge people, right? They're the mm -hmm. ones who are now bringing something new to the table. 
well, quite honestly, I've been doing this for 25 years. It's just taking you all 25 years to figure out this is important. Right. Yeah. So you know, to me, it's not cutting edge anymore. This is what we should be doing. And if you're not interested, then I've got to find somebody else who is so that at least from my own at the time when I was a, you know, not a department chair, but a, uh, an assistant or associate professor, be selfish where I got to do my research because as a faculty member in a sports science type of area or exercise science or kinesiology, there is that saying, publish or perish. So if you don't publish articles, then you might not get tenure and promotion to get to the next level, which gives then a professor a greater income. So you know, professors are under a certain amount of you know, pressure, and, but it's rightfully so, to help bring prestige to themselves, their department, their university, and then hopefully attract students to come to their program. And that's one of the things that I'm talking about to our students. Hey, we need to do those things. And we don't want to be just doing things that are local in the states. We want to go regionally and nationally and then possibly, you know, internationally if things, you know, really blossomed and, and we had some support financially to do some things that currently are beyond our reach. But, you know, I, I'm always the guy who is very hopeful. I mean, I, I, I've always had hope that I can in some way change my own stars as Heath Ledger said in the movie, The Knight's Tale, right? So mm -hmm. you, can, you can be this if you want to be this. I've always had that in my mind. And I've never given that up. So I just believe if we work hard and then we get the right people together, then we can build something that might be better than what we can do on our own. And then it's something really special. And then hopefully we just keep it going. And you have people who want to be involved with it and do it hopefully for a long time. And then maybe that's how we implement the change that we've been talking about over this podcast exactly i one thing i valued and i'm going to steal from brian man i know he's listening but kind of push the field mm -hmm. so it's yeah it's without not, a doubt. yeah not attacking each other it's kind of all mm -hmm. working towards kind of empowering those athletes right i mean i've never done any of this to be statistical in any manner it was never only i had my shortcomings how could have i been better and that's that's always been my approach and and so I'm, I'm, I've always been willing to share my information with anyone and everyone. Anytime I ever gave any presentation at the NSCA, I told them, here's what I do. I'm not hiding anything from you because if I gave you my secret sauce, so to speak, then you could steal my job. I'm confident enough in myself that I'm doing it the right way. Here's what I think you should look at. And if you believe it's a good way too, then keep it going and you add to it in some way so that we all make it better if you're interested in that area. And, you know, that's kind of my approach to it. And then that's where talking with someone like Brian Mann or uh, some others in the field that I respect highly, you know, that they have the same approach and they want to make it better as well because they're, they've been doing the same thing, dealing with the challenges of working in this environment and how we make it better for all strength and conditioning people. Uh, you know, you can get a certification to be a beautician and you can practice what you want. But we don't really have a certification that, or, or that's um, uh, important for a personal trainer, really, in the world, right? So you could actually kill somebody if you're not training them properly. But you can take a weekend course and become a certified personal trainer, and all of a sudden you know what to do. I think we got to change some things in our country, and and, and those things are happening where the uh, Washington D.C. and some even I think in uh, Texas, I think they're trying to do different things where all of a sudden you have to have licensure to be a personal trainer as opposed to just a certificate because now you are dealing with somebody's well-being 
And if something goes wrong, the worst case scenario is someone having a heart attack or dying while they're training. And that shouldn't be happening. And so we, we should expect more from the individuals who are training us. They should have, in my opinion, a formal education of some kind that helps them. And then you have your informal one, which is your, your internships or your volunteer work or whatever else you did. And those are like your apprenticeship, right? You, you've got to have all those things so that you can put it together. And then also then you know, be an advocate for what you do and write articles or <clears throat> put information out there that you think is accurate and then stimulate conversation or help the learning process out. The barrier of entry for the industry is, is pretty low. And I always encourage kind of coaches just getting into this to write because yeah. it is, is such important. It forces you to read, yes. organize the, the thoughts within your head, and then kind of put it into a, a deliverable manner simple, mm-hmm. not simpler, that a, uh, a coach, a parent, or somebody that is not experienced will be able to understand. I think that's great, great advice for anybody because when people, it's funny, when people say, hey, I did some research. All right, please define that for me first. <laughs> so they went to the internet. Well, everything on the internet is accurate. We well, all know David, that. N- David, now it's Instagram. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what, I, I'm 51 years old and I don't really do all that stuff. I do want to keep it simple. And you know what, I, I think you guys also mentioned something at the very beginning of, you know what, your strength training programs, if it ain't broke, you don't have to fix it. So if things work, we don't have to be reinventing the wheel to make something cooler or sometimes as my boys say these days, it's sexier, it appeals to somebody uh, because it's just the newest fad that's out there. If things work, if squat, deadlift, bench, hang clean, power clean, whatever you want, if those things are cornerstones of your program, you found that they've been beneficial for the work, the athletes that you're doing, then by all means, make sure you continue to do them and teach them properly so that they can become stronger, more powerful individuals. Um, And there you have it, folks. Yes. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Thanks for being out there putting that fight on for us, David. You know, and thanks for taking your time to, to chat with us here in Power Athlete Radio OO. Oh, I appreciate man. it very much. Uh, this is the first uh, time I've done something like this, oh, and man. I've enjoyed the process thoroughly. And if you ever need anything in the future, please let me know. Oh, we won't hesitate, my man. For sure. All and, right. Uh, David, how do people learn more? We've, we'll have we link up the, the article um, okay. in the Journal of an Intercollegiate Sport. But how else can people kind of, uh, I guess, get a hold of your research? Or are you speaking at any events, conferences, clinics coming up? Yeah, actually, I am. I'm speaking at the uh, NSCA Missouri State Clinic, and that is going to be on uh, April 21st, and that'll be, uh, I believe, at uh, Longwood University, and I'll be actually talking about the tier system, making it work for you. So the tier system is something that Joe Ken, who's currently the head strength coach for the Carolina Panthers, developed when he was at Boise State, I believe, in the 1990s. And he came up with a program or a tiering of exercises on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday type of program that gives you an exercise menu and then the ability to select what you think are most important for the Monday, Wednesday, Friday workout, where maybe on Monday it's the power movement, such as a hang clean, possibly. On Wednesday, maybe the primary exercise or the first one is going to be a back squat. And then on Friday, it might be the bench press. And so I really like that system because it can allow you to have diversity in your program in a very short given period of time. And But I've modified it 
to train the baseball player as opposed to the way maybe Joe might train a football player. So in the tier system, a lot of exercises are generally geared at sagittal plane movements that are going to be pushing dominant. So your quads and your glutes or your pecs, uh, anterior delts and triceps. But for me, the baseball player is going to go through the throwing process, and there's an arm acceleration and a deceleration phase. And when you release the baseball and your arm slows down, it's the muscles that are on the posterior side of the body that are usually sore. And those muscles are the ones that are sometimes neglected in strength and conditioning programs. So I then, in this presentation, will be talking about how I've modified the tier system to train the baseball athlete the way that I think it might be advantageous and still embracing the tier system that Joe has put together, but just then selecting maybe some different order or priority for some exercises. So the pull, there are some pulling exercises that I think are important for the upper body that a baseball player needs to do because of uh, scapula winging, for example. So that means the shoulder blade being uh, deviating from the spinal column because it might be weak muscles that attach the uh, uh, bones and um, to one another. And so I'm a, an advocate of doing a two to one ratio of pulling upper body exercises to pushing exercises for the baseball athlete. So for example, I might start with a one arm dumbbell row if I'm doing an, uh, an exercise for the upper body. Then if I'm coming back to an upper body push, I might be doing a dumbbell bench press, but then I might come back with another multi-joint pull exercise like a chin up, for example. And I select that exercise because a pull-up puts you in a 90-90 degree position with your elbow and shoulder that might actually cause shoulder impingement. And for a baseball player whose elbow is usually above his shoulder, they might already have shoulder impingement issues. So modifying an exercise using the biceps that allow the exercise to be more easy for them to pull their body weight up. And then, uh, you know, I'm certainly doing some explosive movements, some plyometric movements. Also, I implement the uh, complex training where I'm doing plyometric training with resistance training. I'm doing medicine ball work in all planes of movement. I'm doing rotator cuff and scapula stabilization exercises. And then just saying, hey, here's my menu. And you, you know, just putting it out there, if you want to use it, please do. And so uh, anyone who wants information and why have I done it, I also give research articles that, that support why I've made my choices. So it's not just me saying something. I've used evidence-based information to make my decisions as to my selection of ways that I'm doing things. And I, I just found that the tier system, when you were in a collegiate setting and you had 60 to 75 minutes in a weight room because you had multiple teams coming in, I could make it really efficient workout and get a hell of a lot of volume. It's practical, and so, right? Uh, it's very practical. And you know, the funny thing is, is that the athletes, when you have them, uh, they they assume that probably maybe everybody's doing this type of workout because everybody knows how to do this stuff. And ultimately, when I got let go or didn't work anymore with the, the team here, the guys that ended up working with some other strength coaches, they like, wait a minute, you don't do this, this, and this. Well, why don't you do that? Our previous strength coach did all this stuff. And it might be a, a younger individual who didn't have the experience and maybe even, quite frankly, didn't even like the sport of baseball. And they didn't have that knowledge. And so they found out very quickly that, hey, we didn't have it so bad <laughs> when yeah, yeah. Right. you know Samansky was working with us and we had and he had four or five different assistant coaches working with him so at one time at Louisiana Tech I had five people plus myself making six people on the floor working with 45 baseball players and I'm proud to say that we probably had the most amount of people ever working with a baseball team 
for no money in history. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's one of the best, I guess, two best compliments that you can have as a strength coach. Nobody gets yeah. hurt. Yeah. And then former players come back and say, hey, man, that was awesome. We have this yeah. Yeah, guy that some work. Now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so then that's one place. And then we have a website now because our, our university webpage is, re is being redone. But if someone goes to www.latechsportsscience.org, you'll be able to see our webpage that we control. And you'll see myself, Dr. Gleason, Dr. Blazo, Dr. Chow, who's a new biomechanist here. And then we have Dr. Schilling and Dr. Chen, who are in our pedagogy area. You'll get to see all the things that our faculty are doing, things that might be of interest in potential graduate students. And then where are we speaking? What are we doing? That stuff's out there. What are labs? What are we doing those? We've made YouTube videos on testing techniques so that our students know it. But then, hell, it's out there for everybody else. Because, hey, man, how do you calibrate a metabolic cart to do a vo2 max test how do you do a correct skin fold assessment using skin fold calipers we have stuff like that on that web page and it's Legit. pretty nice yeah yeah and then if anyone wants to email me my email address is d s z y m a n at latech.edu and i'll try to answer any questions provide any research articles uh, you know, you can find me, I think, on LinkedIn and um, ResearchGate. I've got stuff out there as well. And I just love to talk to other people who want to know more and how they also are going to utilize the information to help the people that they're going to work with. Well, floodgates are open, brother. Yeah. People yep. are going to be hitting you up. All and right. Sounds great. Appreciate your time today. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yes, sir. And I, I'm probably going to be at uh, either NSCA this summer or definitely Coaches Conference in January. Hopefully we can connect then. That'd be great. I would look forward to it. All right, All right thank David. You. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye. All right. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Dr. David Szymanski is obviously an incredible resource for anyone coaching or training baseball players. Read up on him at www.latechsportscience.org. And then you can email all of your inquiries to him directly at dsz. Buck, that's wrong, D-S-Y-Z-M-A-N at L-A-Tech dot E-D-U. Until next time, bye!